It's from John chapter 17. This morning we're looking at verses 6 through 11. So we continue our way through this remarkable passage containing our Lord's prayer. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the infallible scriptures breathed out by God. Your word, which is a source of truth and wisdom and light. Help us to understand and to diligently keep your word, to lay it up in our hearts, and that it would guide our actions and decisions, helping us to align ourselves with your perfect will. We ask that you would strengthen our faith as we rest in the assurance that we have a mediator in heaven constantly advocating for us before the Father, making continual intercession on our behalf. Give us all ears to hear his words this morning as they come to us and to apply them to our lives. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we come back for now a second week to this uh, amazing passage, John 17, our Lord's high priestly prayer. And it'll take a few more Sundays to work our way through it. Um, we see here Jesus moving on now from his petition for the Father to glorify his Son, which we considered last Sunday as we looked at verses 1 through 5. And now in this next section, it's plainly a prayer uh, for those who had become disciples of Jesus during his ministry. But equally clearly, it extends to, to encompass all who would become his disciples in the future. So all of us are included in this prayer of Jesus, which is a, which is a mo most fervent and touching intercession, revealing his deepest desires to his Father, as well as the depths of his love for his followers. You'll notice in this prayer something else, uh, in, in, especially in the section uh, I just read to you. Uh, what Jesus does is to distinguish his disciples from the world. 
And that distinction uh, pervades really the whole prayer and, and clearly runs through this in, entire chapter. So to frame things a bit for this morning's uh, consideration, we want to ask what distinguishes the disciples from the world? What are the distinguishing characteristics of Christ's people, his church, in distinction from the rest of mankind? And our passage gives us uh, several points to ponder, uh, but I want you to keep in mind that these points are really all part of just one point, as, as I've just expressed it. And we begin with how Jesus um, speaks of uh, his disciples possessing the, the true knowledge of God. Uh, we are those, as Christ's followers, to whom he has revealed the Father. We looked at this some last Sunday. Jesus speaks of it in verses 1 through 5 a bit. But he says here in verse 6, he goes on, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. In other words, Jesus has made God's name, that is the sum total of his perfections, obvious and clear, the full manifestation of God, the glorious uh, perfections of his nature and character and attributes have been made known in the most distinguished manner in and by Jesus Christ, who is God manifested in the flesh. And so how did Jesus do this? Well, first, obviously, by what he was as the representative of God upon earth as the very incarnation of God, as Jesus says, he who has seen him has seen the Father. For he is the image of the invisible God. In the manifested person of the Son, the disciples and others had a manifestation of the nature, attributes, and character of the Father. As we are told at the very beginning of John's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Speaking of Christ, the only begotten Son, he is the Father's exegete. But Jesus also, we would more narrowly speaking, manifested the Father's name by what he spoke, his, his preaching and his teaching set forth the Father. Not only did his words set forth the Father in the meaning which they conveyed, but the very words which he spoke were the Father's, given to him by the Father. And so in hearing him, you were, in effect, listening to the very words which his Father gave him to speak. That's what Jesus says. Not only what he said, therefore, but the very words in which he conveyed his thoughts were a manifesting of the name of the Father. But also by what Jesus did, the Lord manifested his Father's name. As his words were not his own, but the Father's, so also his works were the Father's. Every miracle of mercy, every deed of kindness and act of compassion, all the gracious words he ever spoke, and all the gracious works he ever did were but the sayings and doings of the Father in him. And so... In short, what distinguishes his disciples from the world is first the fact that we know God truly because his name has been manifested to us 
by Jesus Christ. The great commentator Leon Morris put it well. I'll just read you this quote before I move to the next point. Leon Morris says, Jesus has revealed to his followers what God's name means in ways that they had never dreamed of before. And in doing this, he has enlarged their understanding of the nature of God. To this day, it is the case that people know what kind of God God is because of what Jesus has taught us about him in his formal teaching, in the way he lived out his life of communion with the Father, and of service of the Father, and in the manner of his sacrificial death for sinners. But that's not all Jesus speaks of here as we go on. It gets even better as um, the next point has to do with our election. Jesus distinguished his disciples from the world as those whom the Father had given him. As those whom the Father had given him. In this prayer, he thus described them five times at minimum, probably seven times, depending on in how you translate verses 11 and 12. Um, he said, you have given, Jesus says to the Father, you have given him, in verse 2, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then verse 6 in our passage this morning, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Verse 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. In verses 11 and 12, we have the same expression, which could be translated, those that you have given me. And then verse 24 as well, if you were to skip down, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. So there it is over and over again, this wonderful expression of our Lord Jesus to, to refer to you in distinction from the world. Now, for good reason, uh, we oftentimes reflect on and think about Jesus as God's gift to us. Right? That's kind of the heart of the gospel, isn't it? God gave his only begotten son. We rarely think of ourselves as God's gift to Jesus. But such is what we are, because that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. This is a just description of every child of God. None would ever give themselves to Christ if they were not previously given to him by the Father. None would come to Christ unless they were drawn to him by the Father. Jesus spoke of this back in John chapter 6. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. His point was that everyone whom the Father designed to come to his Son would come. Not the rest of the world, but only those. <laughs> And thus our salvation from its start to finish rests on the sovereign decree of our God who decided in his grace even from before the foundations of the world and in the eternal act of predestinating love to have mercy on us. Not because of anything he saw in us or that demanded it, but for the love of the Son. And so I hope we all 
can agree, speaking for myself at least, that the only reason that I can give why I'm a Christian is because I'm a gift of the Father to the Son. Not because of anything I've, I've ever done or could do. It doesn't work like that. And the only reason you could ever give under heaven for why you are a Christian and belong to the community of his people called out of the world into his Son is because you, too, are a gift of the Father to the Son. And that brings us to really, just to this next point is closely related, has to do with how Jesus speaks of God's, God's um, ownership of us, how, how disciples of Jesus are distinguished from the world in that we are God's property. We are his treasured uh, uh, possession. Yours they were, Jesus says. A powerful assertion that before conversion, we belong to God the Father. Yours they were. And that's true because of his eternal election. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. We, uh, when our names were written in the Lamb's book of life, yours they were. And you gave them to me. And then skipping down to verse 9, he says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. It's beautiful. And very uh, specific to, to his people. It's true that everything and everyone uh, belongs to God by virtue of creation. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Here he's talking about what distinguishes disciples from the rest of the world. Namely, that they are his possession as the gift of the Father. The Father's love gift. As belonging to Jesus, they were the Father's property. As belonging to the Father, they were the property of Jesus. They did not cease to be the Father's when he gave them to the Son. They then became what, what, what some have called uh, doubly his, or claimed with a double ownership by the Father and the Son in the embrace of everlasting love. His, by right of eternal election, His, by right of redemption accomplished and applied, and His, by the closest possible union and communion, both now and forevermore, we are a people for His own possession. I'd also very briefly highlight that, that it is those, is moving on to one more, another observation, it is those given to Jesus by the Father who, Jesus says, keep God's word. It's another distinguishing mark. If you look at me at the, at the end of verse 6, yours they were and you gave them to me. That's God's part. And Jesus continues, and they have kept your word. Well, what did Jesus mean when he said they've kept your word? Well, I think the following words unpack it a little bit or explain it. He said, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. 
and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you have sent me. So it suggests that Jesus used the phrase your word as a shorthand expression really here for, for the gospel. Uh, he was not saying that the disciples had uh, you know, obeyed every jot and tittle of the Mosaic law or had kept uh, every commandment that Jesus had given to them. I don't think that's the point. But they had embraced these essential truths. They had come to see Jesus as the Savior sent from God. And they had put their faith and trust in him. They'd come to believe. And that's no different in the final analysis from what God does with us. If we are in Christ, it is because God chose us from eternity. God gave us to Christ as a love gift. That one who manifested his word to us with the result that the gospel is now in our hearts and is embraced in the obedience of faith. Faith in Christ, the Son. <clears throat> Another way in which Christ's people are distinguished from the world, and again, I know it sounds like a bunch of points, but really all facets of one main point. And this could probably be suggested as a main feature uh, of the entire chapter. It is this, that we are the particular objects of Christ's priestly work. That, that work of intercession which he performed. Performed not on behalf of the world generally, but for his own people specifically. Notice how our Lord highlights this truth in verse 9. I am praying for them, them is those identified and described in verses 6 through 8. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. And if you don't get it, you need to hear it again. He says, but <laughs> for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So clearly he was not praying for everyone. Clearly his intercession is limited. Not universal. He offers it for his own in particular. Not for the world in general. And the reason is simply this. That this prayer is the interceding prayer of the high priest. The high priest on behalf of his people whom he represents to God. That's what priests do. Those people whom God gave to him, who are the very people for whom Jesus was preparing to offer and sacrifice his own blood as an atoning sacrifice. And thus Jesus specifies that his priestly prayer is for particular persons, not for the world as a whole. Yes, Jesus offers salvation to the entire world, I hope you know that. But I also hope you know that he intercedes as priest before God to effect salvation 
only for those who belong to him. Dying to atone for their sins and sending the Spirit to open their hearts to saving faith. And so in Reformed theology, at least, we have emphasized that Christ's entire priestly ministry takes this, this particular shape. Since the priestly offering and the priestly intercession were always performed together, always performed together, Jesus prays as our great high priest for the very people for whom he was about to go to the cross, for whom he was about to die. Spurgeon comments, Our Lord Jesus pleads for his own people when he puts on his priestly breastplate. It is for the tribes whose names are there. When he presents the atoning sacrifice, it is for Israel, whom God has chosen. And so the doctrine associated with our Lord's statement here is, uh, is limited atonement or particular redemption. Doctrine which says that while Jesus' death extends a gospel invitation to all the world, the actual atonement was offered only for his own people whom the Father had given him from all eternity. To teach otherwise is to assert that Jesus atoned for sins that are not actually forgiven. Uh, and this is a this particular focus is really something you see throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments, especially in the Bible's teaching on the cross. There's so many texts and arguments in support of it, and I certainly we don't have time to explore all of that. But here, let's take note of what our Lord is really saying. We pause to appreciate how the close connection between the intercessory and sacrificial work of Christ furnishes us another argument for a limited atonement. In the Reformed tradition, we insist that Christ's entire priestly work here in, in this prayer and on the cross as well, his entire priestly work must be viewed always as, as a harmonious whole the atonement and the intercession are simply two integral, coextensive aspects of his priestly work. And therefore, the scope of the one cannot exceed or be wider than the scope of the other. If Christ prayed exclusively for those whom the Father had given him, as he does here, he also bought only those with his blood. If the former is limited in extent, so also is the latter. doesn't really make sense to maintain that Christ died for everyone, but only intercedes for some. This doesn't make sense. And I think that the sort of pastoral or practical value of this doctrine lies in realizing that Jesus did not make atonement merely you know, for the cause of salvation or only to, to uh, make salvation possible or, or, or for the possibility of sinners to be forgiven. Instead, Jesus died to atone, to make atonement for the particular sins of his actual people having made the perfect, complete, absolute atonement once and for all, in that every single sin you've committed, every single sin you will ever commit in this world is all covered 
That's the benefit of having been given to Jesus by the Father. If you believe in Christ, you may say with perfect accuracy that Jesus died for me to pay the debt of all my sins. And likewise, Jesus here specifies that his priestly intercession is not for the world in general, but is offered for those elect people known personally to him in all eternity and given to him by the Father to be his precious own. And to say, as many have done, that Jesus died generally for all, even though he prays here only for his own, is really to, dis as I was saying, just to, to, to recap, is to disregard the unity of the priest's atoning work and to deny the clear implications of what Jesus here emphasizes when he says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. I think if, if you believe half of what Jesus is saying here, your, your, your head is starting to explode, just how amazing it all is. And it gets you know, even Better, you might say, in, in what Jesus goes on to say in verse 10. He also says, and I am glorified in them. I am glorified in them. It's a sixth way in which his disciples are distinguished from the world. If I've counted right, I think it's number six. We are those in whom Jesus is glorified. Not just wretched worms saved by grace that just can do nothing. It should thrill us to know that it's that um, that Jesus treasures us as belonging to the Father, as God's love gift to the Son, etc. But here he adds that he delights in us because his glory is invested in our salvation. And how is Jesus glorified in his people? More ways than I can get into now, but just highlight that he is first glorified in his work of grace for our salvation. As the purchase of his blood, we attest to the success of his redeeming work. As the trophies of his power, we attest to the all-conquering might of his love. As the creations of his grace, we attest transformation into his likeness and image. As one writer put it, the drunkard is made straight, the sober, the thief turns to hard work, the adulterer commits to chastity, and the blasphemer offers his tongue in praise to God. Christ is glorified in every sinner, cleansed and set free to live for God. He's also glorified in us to the degree that we lead holy lives and perform good works. Jesus has interceded and died for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, as Paul says. This is our true incentive in turning from sin and avoiding hypocrisy. It's our true incentive in adorning the gospel by our lives and in going to church and cultivating holy graces and in pursuing good works in Christ's name. It's that Jesus might be glorified in our lives, glorified in us before the world. And Jesus is glorified also by our bold confession of faith, not by those who live as secret Christians, frightened to let others know that 
you serve and trust the Lord Jesus, no true Christian can remain undercover or incognito and desiring for Christ to be glorified. We should all live openly before the world in obedience to his word, confessing Christ before men. And Jesus is glorified also by our work to extend his kingdom. Another quote from Charles Spurgeon, which reminds me of what um, Dennis said on Friday night in this charge of the congregation. But Spurgeon said, The tendency is so often to leave everything to be done by the minister or else by one or two leading people. But I do pray you, beloved, if you be Christ's and if you belong to the Father, do try to be of use to them. Let it be seen by your winning others to Christ that he is glorified in you. End quote. So let Christ be glorified in your prayers for the church and for gospel success. Let Christ be glorified by your generous giving to support gospel ministry and mission. Let Christ be glorified by your sacrificial involvement in missions or mercy or hospitality or, or spiritual encouragement in whatever we do for the extension of Christ's kingdom in home, at work, at, uh, in, in the world, especially in the church. Jesus is glorified in us. And so with these reasons echoing in our hearts, let us raise our heads from the profound prayer of our high priest here in awe of the incredible honor he's graciously bestowed upon us as we depart from this place this morning and re-enter the world. May we attune our hearts to the tender words of Jesus reassuring us, you are the Father's possession given to me, the Son, and I am glorified in you. So what then distinguishes the, the disciples of Christ from the world? Well, to just recap quickly, Jesus says, we are those to whom the Son has manifested the Father's name. Two, we are the Father's love gift to his Son. Three, we are claimed with a double ownership by the Father and the Son. Four, we are those who keep the word of the Father and the Son. Five, we are those for whom the Son makes effectual intercession and atonement. And we are those in whom the Son is glorified. And the last thing I'll mention as we come to the, the end of the text this morning, I'll just add that we're also those, um, we're those whom Jesus asks the Father to preserve. And this is in verse 11, the, uh, that verse 11 contains the actual uh, plea, the, the, um, the first petition that our Lord puts up for his disciples in the world. Up to this point, it's been all, you could say, description of, of his disciples, who we are in, distinguish, in distinction from the world. But now he's putting up his first actual petition saying, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And then the petition, Holy Father, keep them in your name. The ESV says, keep them in your name, which you have given me. I don't think, 
Personally, that's the best way to translate it. I would suggest it says this. Holy Father, keep in your name those whom you have given me. That they might be one. We'll come back to that another week. The, the, the unity of the church. Keep in your name those whom you have given me. And so Jesus, so sure of his death and departure back to the Father, saying, I come to you, I am coming to you. He... Uh, so sure of that he treated his departure as an already accomplished fact. He prays here for his disciples because they would have to, in the world, face all manner of trials, all manner of temptations uh, without his immediate presence and protection. And Jesus knows that the world will hate them. He knows that the world will, will persecute them and, and abuse them, even as it hated and persecuted and abused him. But he will not leave them alone. He will so keep them that they shall not be overwhelmed in the world's enmity or extinguished. And so in great tenderness, Jesus commends to his Father's keeping those whom you have given me. And to be kept, of course, is to be protected, to be preserved Remember how the great priestly blessing of the Old Testament, that great priestly benediction began with the words, the Lord bless you and keep you. Number six, verse 26. So those who are saved are kept, not just today, but forever. Not by their own resources, but by the power of God. And so it's not surprising that we find Jesus praying that his disciples should be kept as in a fortress within the enclosing circle of the name, which Christ has manifested to them. He asked his Father to make the revelation of the divine character which was granted them the enclosing wall, as it were, the, or the stronghold or fortress within which they were to be kept safe, eternally secure now and forever and to the end. I think of those words of King Solomon back in Proverbs 18, where we read, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Oh, what a view of the believer's safety does this bring before us, our confidence regarding our eternal security, our, our assurance regarding our perseverance unto the end rests on the mercies of God uh, and his unchangeable decree, and especially, as we're reminded here, on the high priesthood of Christ who, who prayed that God would keep us safe to the very end. And so we rest our confidence, not on our own consistency as Christians, or better, our inconsistency as Christians, but on the efficacy and the uh, continual efficacy of his intercession. And know that the Father will never say no to his Son. He will never say no to a single plea of this faithful high priest who always obtains whatever he asks in prayer 
That's how sure your safekeeping and preservation are. And here he prays again, not for the world, but for the, for the people his father gave him out of the world. In other words, he's praying for you. He's praying for me. And he's saying, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And so we can say, we can declare with the psalmist, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And we'll sing that in just a moment, but first, let us pray. Almighty and loving God and Father, Holy Father, we thank you for the high priestly work of your only begotten Son in our behalf. Um, and we do, as, as we reflect on these, this, what, he, what our Lord says in his prayer, we ask that you would enable us to embody these distinctions as your disciples to know your sacred name revealed through Christ, to embrace our identity as a love gift to the Father and the Son, to surrender ourselves completely to your divine double ownership of us, to faithfully keep your word in our hearts and lives, to find assurance and strength in the Son's unceasing and always efficacious intercession for us, and to reflect his glory in all that we say and think and do. And Lord, do we are confident that you will Keep us from this time forth and forevermore. You will keep our going out and our coming in because Christ has asked for it. And you'll never say no to him. We rest secure in that and give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.